If you turn your Bibles to the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis 49, uh, the first 11 verses of the second to last chapter, uh, three more studies. We'll have this one, one more in 49, then the final study in chapter 50 as we conclude a, a study that's taken us just right at two years to complete uh, through this amazing book, the book of beginnings. And the book of beginnings has an end, and so we've come to the end of the book of beginnings in that sense. Genesis chapter 49 to me is, is fascinating, it's interesting, it's very unusual, it's also uh, difficult in some ways uh, to actually interpret, to exegete the text, to bring out of it what is intended. Um, but there is also contained within it one of the, the most beautiful of all of the Messianic prophecies found in the Old Testament. We'll get to that tonight as we look at verse 10, uh, this one who is the Shiloh who is to come. But as you look at chapter 49, you kind of look at it from the standpoint in which I believe the Lord intended us to, to really look at it. Uh, Jacob is now going to have some kind of final words for his sons. They're about to uh, put him in a bone box and carry his bones around and uh, eventually bring him back into the promised land. But uh, Jacob himself, Israel, is, is going to leave the scene. But the children, the 12 tribes, uh, the, the founders, if you will, of the nation Israel are going to get some final instruction. It's kind of like if you could give just a final word to each of your kids. If you have multiple kids, what would you say to them? How, how would you treat them? What would be the word that you would have for them at the very uh, end of your life as they would carry on the family line, the family tradition? And so in some respects, that's really what we have here. Um, as we look at the, the, the totality of this passage, it's interesting to me that this is very much like what we find in the life of Noah as he's explaining to his children what's going to happen, kind of see how the people of the earth actually spread out. And we have, of course, the table of nations back in chapter 9. And so we've got this picture of how the world got to where it is. But tonight, we're really going to be looking at uh, just four of these sons and then this incredible messianic prophecy. And so would you pray with me? And we'll take here the first 11 verses. Father, thank you for the amazing truth of your word. And Lord, how someone could read uh, this particular chapter and miss the Messiah uh, to me is somewhat amazing. And so, Father, I pray that you'd speak to us tonight as we really are in the last days. Lord, those last days certainly are days that are ahead. Um, but we have come so far in the history of mankind that surely we are out on the end of that great timeline, the time that uh, we might expect your imminent return for your church, the rapture of the church. Lord, that period that would follow the tribulation. Lord, eventually coming back a second time, you would, you would return and fight that battle of Armageddon. Lord, and then the thousand-year reign that you'll have on this earth to establish your kingdom. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, with your truth tonight. Speak to us. Encourage us. Lift us up, Lord. Uh, get us ready for the week that lies ahead, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as you look at this chapter, and we kind of break it down a little bit, the, this passage kind of uh, begins with really uh, just a, a general understanding of each one of these four sons that are mentioned in these first 11 verses. But 
it really provides a backdrop and remember that the names mean something in the Old Testament and so as their names are revealed and as their qualities are revealed we can kind of look back in hindsight um, to the history that we know about the book of Genesis and we're going to see that basically you're, you're getting kind of prepped for what the nation Israel is going to look like in the future and so these general characteristics uh, that we have is, is important to us because we can then look at what uh, is said here and then look at the children of Israel and say, do we see any of this? And so verse one here, we'll take the first 11 verses. And Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. The term last days, as you find it in the Old Testament, refers to a general period of time that could be the last days of any individual it also pertains to a general period of time which would be the very last days or the end of the age of grace and it also refers to a very specific period of time the last days which is going to be yet future from where we are today so in that sense there was a last days for the children of israel for these men that are going to be spoken of There's also the period of time known as the last days, and we are out on the very end of that, and we have not yet come to the very last days, which are going to be, which will be that time when the Lord takes his church home, raptures us out, tribulation ensues, Jesus comes again a second time, fights the battle of Armageddon, followed by the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, and then finally, uh, Satan is permanently cast into the lake of fire. And, And so, Speaking here in this particular thing, I believe he's actually referring to the totality of these things. In other words, he's speaking generally about the sons, he's speaking generally about the last days, and he's given us a little glimpse of what lies ahead with Messiah. That I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And it's interesting the way that that's phrased in the original language because he's really referring to, look, I kind of raised you as Jacob's sons, but I want you to understand what's coming from a position that I, I'm saying to you, I am living my life as one governed by God as Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellence of power. But, you might put in there, You're unstable as water. You shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. And you went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi, you are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united with their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. In their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce. Their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And Judah, you are are he whom your brothers shall praise. Of course, the name Judah actually means God be praised. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. For Judah is the lion's whelp. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. And he bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? And here comes verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him 
shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine, and he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. And so as you look at these first 11 verses, and we'll pick up the remainder of the chapter next time because it's lengthy, you you can kind of remember that throughout Scripture we've looked at the titles and things that uh, very often you find in your Bible. And so in some of your Bibles, specifically if you have a King James Version, you, you will probably have something on the order of like the heading of this chapter is Jacob blesses his sons. Remember that those titles that you have in your Bible are not inspired. Um, they were added by the, by the authors, the compilers, and generally the individual uh, companies that have produced your Bibles. They put things in there to help you understand kind of what's coming but they themselves are not actually inspired. And in this sense, it kind of doesn't sound like much of a blessing, does it? And and the reason that that word blessing is used there is it's actually used down in verses 25 and 26, and it's only with reference to Joseph. Joseph is going to receive a blessing, but because of who this family represents, who these people are, they are all literally going to be a blessing to the world because they are going to be the ones that will bring forth the line of the tribe of Judah. They are the forebears of the Messiah in that sense. And and so Jacob begins, in essence, with uh, not only not a blessing, but basically reminding them of who they are. When you understand this particular passage in in its entirety, and we take the whole chapter, you kind of get to a sense of kind of what to look for in the personality traits of the people uh, that we would know as the Jewish people. And it's interesting Because when you look back at the history of the Jewish people, you're going to find that they are uh, extremely intelligent. They're very crafty. They have an exorbitantly high percentage uh, of the world's Nobel Prize winners are Jewish. More than 25% of all Nobel Prize winners are Jewish, and yet they comprise less than 4% of the total population of the world. And so when you look at who they are, you're going to find out that some of these characteristics that we see in this passage and in the remainder of the chapter really do bear, bear some fruit. You're also going to find that, and if you talk, I happen to have a, a very dear friend who happens to be Jewish, and when we talk about it, he says, yeah, he says, this, this is the personality, the characteristics uh, of some of his family members. He says, we're industrious, but don't get on the wrong side of us because we know exactly how to you know, make sure that we always get the good end of the bargain. And, and while that's not meant to be anti-Semitic in any way, shape, or form, because the man telling me that is Jewish, he says, yeah, we, we, we as a people inherited many of these characteristics that you see in Genesis chapter 49. And so as we look at this, we're going to meet really just one that we're going to concern ourselves with, and that's there in verse 10. But is this particular passage to us, uh, should it be labeled a blessing? And and if you look at that, you really have the sons of Leah, and then you have uh, this pronouncement, in essence, of these sons that have gone the wrong direction, what's going to happen to them. And it's really a reminder of of a truth that we'll get to in our study in the book of Galatians, found there in chapter 6, where God reminds us that he's not mocked. Don't be deceived. Whatever you sow, that you're one day going to reap. And in this case, these sons that participated in some very vile activity are already going to begin to to pay the price for what they've done. 
And so he's going to assure them of their place in the future promised land. He, he's going to remind them that they mean a great deal. And in essence, this is kind of like his last will, his trust, if you will. He's kind of saying, this is the way it's going to go uh, for each of my sons. And so it begins um, with really four kind of compartments, if you will. And the first one contains this messianic prophecy, the prophecy of Shiloh who is to come. And in it, we also have uh, the sons of Leah. And remember that God gave uh, Jacob six sons by Leah, but Leah was the wife he didn't want. He was waiting for Rachel, and he gets kind of cajoled into working for seven years and then it's all of a sudden it's like well this isn't what I bargained for and then there's seven more years and so uh, here comes Leah but it's interesting to me that Leah actually gives him uh, the two sons that will actually be the most important of the sons of Jacob that's Levi which is the priestly tribe and Judah which is the kingly tribe and so you have both the priest and the king coming out of this wife that was not a wife of choice but rather the wife that was was the bargain with Laban and so the first of them uh, we see is Reuben and so verse three there Reuben you're my firstborn my might uh, the beginning of my strength and the excellency of it but then you defiled it and so Jacob speaks directly to Reuben his oldest son and he says look I can't really give you a compliment. And it's rather like when you read the seven churches of the book of Revelation, um, you, you find that, you know, the, the writer there, Jesus is basically speaking to John and, and says to John, look, I, I'd like to commend you, but I have this against you. And that's kind of the story here with Reuben. Uh, the sin that he committed that we uh, saw back in chapter 35 is now finally caught up with him. And, and Jacob's uh, going to give a blessing to him. He, he's going to have two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that uh, eventually are, are going to receive part of the inheritance. Um, but these these sons, there's not a lot to you know to commend them about. As a matter of fact, they they've acted horribly in their time. And so he says to them, "You're going to be unstable. You're going to be like water. You're not going to be able to be contained. You're going to kind of go your own way, do your own thing." Uh, you're going to be reckless in that sense. And, and as we get into the book of Numbers and finally into the book of Judges and then into the book of Chronicles, as we look at the story uh, of Reuben's life, we're going to find out that, that Reuben did exactly these things. Um, he, he, you, you almost can't find a good word about Reuben anywhere in Scripture. There's only a handful of instances where he even does anything that you might call courageous, where he joins in with the rest of the family in battle. That finally happens in chapter 12 of the first book of Chronicles. And so you're, you're going to see that Reuben fulfills this particular comment that's made about him. He's unstable. Um, he kind of does his own thing, goes his own way. Uh, his, his sons are, are going to be part, uh, kind of the Reubenites will give uh, leadership to the rebellion of Korah there in the book of Numbers and, and so the, thousands of people are going to die because of this particular son and so he, he's giving him that message he's saying look you guys messed up and you're going to kind of continue to go that way and while we may not uh, agree with the assessment that 
when these things are pronounced that they have to be so. In this case, this is God speaking into this particular son's life, and that is exactly the way we find it in Scripture. And so the tribe of Reuben uh, settled on the east side of, of the Jordan, so they're on the east side uh, of the Sea of Galilee, so they're over there with the half-tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Gad in, in what we would call modern-day uh, Jordan, And so the army that they raise up, remember, uh, they're in the book of Judges. Uh, Deborah, this incredible uh, prophet that is a woman, and, and Barak, when they go and fight against the Canaanites, they, they put out this call, and it is only the Reubenites that don't come to the, to the battle cry. And so they are and will be and continue to be uh, unstable in that sense. The next couple of sons are Simeon and Levi. And so when you look at them, verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. It's like, man, it's like, who wants sons like this? Reuben's costly sin was lust. Simeon and Levi were guilty of anger, violence, the massacre of the Shechemites. We saw that back in chapter 34. Uh, that revenge, supposedly, was because their their sister Dinah was attacked she was raped and, and but they carry that punishment ridiculously to an extreme and so the tribe of Simeon eventually is going to be absorbed into the tribe of Judah the tribe of Levi will not even have a part in the inheritance they're just simply going to be given 48 cities and those cities will be the Levitical cities they will live there uh, but they'll basically not be able to own anything and so God deals with this kind of divided heart and, and puts them into this position of kind of having a temporary um, dwelling place that's mixed in with everyone else. They were scattered throughout all of Israel, and that's exactly what we find in their history. They didn't have a, a place of their own. They kind of had to move in with everybody else, with all the rest of the family. And then finally of these brothers, and we pick this up uh, in verse 8, we have Judah. And so we're going to focus most of our time tonight uh, on this particular passage and the passage, verse 10, uh, that, is, that is so important to us going forward. Jacob had paraded basically the sins of, of Reuben and Simeon and Levi and kind of didn't really tell us too much about the negative side of Judah, but it was actually Judah, remember, that sold Joseph into slavery. It was his idea. So it's not exactly like he was free from any wrongdoing. But about Judah, he says in verse 8, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. In other words, he's going to be the, the kingly line. And of course, David is from the tribe of Judah. And so this is the kingly line. This is the tribe of Judah. And it's interesting because from a messianic standpoint, the coming Messiah had to somehow link together both the priestly tribe and the kingly tribe. It had to be a priest king. Remember when we met good old Melchizedek on the plains of Shinar out there in the middle of the desert, there was something. He was the king of Salem he was the king of peace but he was also one to whom was worship given so he was actually priest and king and when the messiah comes he's going to be both priest and king he's going to fulfill both of those roles 
during the history of the children of Israel, they were separate. You had the Levitical side and you had the Judaic side or the side that was related to Judah. You are he whom your brothers shall praise and the hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down to you for Judah is the lion's whelp. In other words, it's uh, the, the one who is the cub of the lion, if you will. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Nobody's going you know, to mess with the lion, basically. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, and he's washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. And so here we kind of have this singular family that we're going to focus in on for the rest of our time. In, in Jacob's estimation, kind of you see Judah kind of rising to the, to the top of the heap of these brothers uh, it was Judah that offered himself as surety, as kind of, you know, I'll stand in. If Benjamin doesn't come back, you can have me. So there are some good things about him. Um, but when Jacob finally moved to Egypt, uh, it was Judah that kind of went ahead. He was the one that kind of paved the way, if you will. Um, but it was also Judah that made some mistakes. And so he'd done some things right. He'd done some things not so right. But when it gets down to this portion of Scripture, what he's saying is like, look, there's going to come a point in time when your brothers are actually going to praise you. The rest of the family is going to go, praise God for Judah. He's going to found the royal tribe that's going to give Israel their kings. And when you read Hebrews chapter 7, uh, ultimately the final king is the king of kings. Amen? The Lord of lords. Amen? And so Judah uh, is going to be also Jesus's uh, tribe and and he will also uh, in that sense because he's got a mom and a dad who are from two different tribes and guess which ones they are they're from Judah and Levi and so you have the two tribes joined together even though his, his natural father is not Joseph is he was born of the Holy Spirit but they're connected uh, through the the lineage of both Judah and Levi and you can see that uh, in the genealogies in Matthew and Luke's gospel. And, and so Judah is going to be a, a praise to the Lord, if you will. And, and so as he founds his royal tribe, it's going to be David who comes uh, initially. He'll be the, the primary example. But Jacob here is compared to a lion's cub and, and a lioness. And it's kind of like, um, you know, if, if there's a lion out in the plains that's feeding on a kill, nobody's going to go over there and poke the lion with a stick. Amen. It, it, the, the Davidic tribe, the tribe of Judah, is going to be that fierce warrior tribe. And so I believe that these final verses, actually verses 11 and 12, are describing uh, a time that is still yet future to us. It's speaking of the time uh, when Messiah comes again and the children of Israel actually see him. And, and so you have a little bit of hyperbole here in this passage. And it's speaking of yeah, nobody's going to tie their donkey to a, to a grapevine. Amen. If you've got a donkey, if you know anything about grapevines, they're not good for holding animals. Um, they're, they're barely good for holding grapes. They're extremely weak. And so it, it's speaking that that day and time, what's going to happen, because grapes were very valuable, they were valuable for fruit, they were valuable for wine, they were, they were a very, very valuable commodity. 
And so during that time, it seems as though that in the final stages of mankind's existence here on this earth, um, when Messiah reigns, people are going to enjoy health, they're going to enjoy beauty. And when you look at what the Bible says about the end of the millennial reign of Christ, the lion's going to lie down with the lamb. There's going to be abundance everywhere. There's going to be no sin. There's going to be a forced reign of righteousness. It's going to be a great time. And it appears that we're looking forward at that time. And so he makes the statement, until Shiloh comes. So it's right up there with uh, chapter 7 when we, we find out that this, this one that's going to be born of a virgin comes. But th- this one is, to me, even more striking when I look at it. And if you're thinking from a scripture and from the standpoint of scripture, when you look at the prophetic word of God, in other words, God speaking ahead of time and giving us some information that we would want to know, um, this is pretty high up on the list um, because what we ultimately will understand because we have the completed word of God and we have the book of Revelation, we know that ultimately Messiah is going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, Amen. So, so we actually know that now. They didn't know it then, uh, but you can imagine after John pens the book of Revelation, after he spends his time in the island of Patmos, as he's writing these things out, as, as the Lord visits him there in that cave in the island of Patmos, and, and he writes down there in Revelation chapter 5 that the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. And so he's going to open the book and, and he's the one that's going to be able to loose the seven seals. You see, the person who understands what the Bible says looks at that. Okay, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, what did Israel say to his sons with regard to Judah? What would happen to this one person that would come from the, the lineage of Judah what was it that was going to happen through this particular tribe? Well, we're privy to that information in advance. And so the scepter was the symbol of royal authority. So you can see that the scepter is not going to depart from this particular, from this particular tribe. And so as we trace the history of Judah and we trace the lineage of Jesus, he ends up coming because where are Joseph and Mary going when they're going to fulfill the census that was called for, where are they headed? Does anybody remember? To Bethlehem, to David City, amen? So they're attached directly to David, the Davidic line, the tribe of Judah, that is Jesus' birthright. So Jesus is actually of the tribe of Judah in that sense. And so the scepter is not going to depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. When the staff was between the feet of the ruler, that means that he's at peace. When the staff was moved outside of his feet, that means he's at war. And so we know, because the Bible tells us um, who Jesus actually is, and we know him by a bunch of different names. And so this original long staff became a short rod, and, and it would be that uh, the Messiah would hang on to that. The, the birth of the king would come. And later in history, when the tribes of Israel went to David and expressed their recognition as the person God had chosen as king, um, this is what they said. Previously, when Saul was king over us, they're in Second Samuel chapter 5, you were the one who led Israel in and out. 
And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people and you will be ruler over Israel. And so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them before Hebron and the anointed David king over Israel. And so David being of that tribe was given that scepter. It's like, I want you to know these things. And so the Bible records this passing of the history and of the power that was the Davidic kings, that's why, that's why the archaeological search for the relevance and the reality of King David has become such a huge deal. If you travel to Jerusalem today, and you travel to the southern end of the Temple Mount, and you go down to the Davidson, Davidson Center, and then you go across the street and down into what's called Zion, which was David's old city, and you're inside of the old city, there was a bus parking lot Uh, that was adjacent to the old city and until a number of years ago we had no actual evidence that there was ever a king david until they found not one not two but three bulla which are the little stamps that were put on to parchments to seal them Uh, we now have three of them that announce david is king and so we we now have some very specific evidence coming from the old city of zion that David was king and David was from the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus now extends out that lineage and extends out that rulership ultimately into a time that is still yet future to us. And so he is going to be the final king. Um, That royal tribe of Israel um, is, is finally going to be made manifest. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel, David's descendants... Uh, speaking uh, from that position, saying, "I shall build a house for my name and establish there the throne of his kingdom forever. And so this, this eternal kingdom is going to be the one that is, that is raised up from this one who is also called Shiloh. And, and the reason that's important is because of what Jesus is the king of. Anybody know what Jesus' kingly title actually is? He is the Prince of Peace, amen? And so when you, when you look at what Scripture says about the one who will be the final ruler of the final kingdom, the one who is to come, the one who is worthy to open the scrolls, the one who's going to finally come back and rule and reign in righteousness, we know a few things about him. We know that he will be of the tribe of Judah. In fact, he will be the lion of the tribe of Judah, That's exactly what's said in this passage because he is going to be the one who will carry the tribe of Judah's name into the future. We know that Jesus was directly associated with the tribe of Judah because his parents went there to have his birth registered. So when Jesus comes back, he's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. His name, when you look at what Shiloh actually means in this particular passage because his promise is he's going to be a king but he's going to be a king whose name is Shiloh Shiloh comes from Shalah which means peace and so he is the king of peace in that sense and in fact in fact the ancient Jewish targums um, the Onkelos targum to be very specific said that this particular passage could only refer to the coming messiah 
And so as we read our Bibles now in our day and time, Judah ultimately is going to rule over all of Israel. In fact, Judah is going to rule over all the world through the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, isn't he? And so we're getting a little insight into what lies ahead prophetically uh, for the world that we live in. A Messiah is going to be the bringer of rest. What is the kingdom that Jesus is the king of? My kingdom, Jesus said, is a kingdom of rest. My kingdom, Jesus said, is a kingdom of peace. And and as you read the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, it wasn't Moses, it's not Joshua, the, the Prince of Peace of Isaiah 9, 6 is the, also the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so this one that's being spoken of here in the very end of the book of Genesis is none other than the King of Kings. He's none other than the Lord of Lords. And so as he's written about, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For one who entered his rest, or in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, has rest has himself also rested from his works. What did Jesus do? He left earth, went back to heaven, and he's been resting from his works, making intercession for you and I. And so we know that the one that's being spoken of is this same prince of peace, this same one who's the bringer of rest, this one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, this one that Moses ultimately writes about as he as he pins these words that we have as the book of beginnings or Genesis and so it would be salvation through Christ Jesus that would be the rest what happens to us we studied it this morning when we give our lives to Jesus we have perfect rest amen I'm no longer looking over I'm not thinking you know man God's going to barbecue me one day I'm not thinking when I, you know, when I take my last breath, I better be really, really concerned. No, Jesus is my rest. I rest in the Shiloh who is to come. I'm just sitting there going, you know what, Lord, you got this all under control. You've had this mapped out since the very beginning. You wrote almost 4,000 years ago, the the timeline of the history that we're reading here. You wrote nearly 4,000 years ago, these words that told us that when Messiah comes, he's going to be the eternal king he's going to be the eternal lion king he is going to be the lion that defeats satan he is going to be the bringer of rest he's going to be the bringer of peace that's our king and we got a glimpse of him a long time before jesus was born amen that's why when paul would write about um, the lord jesus or in Romans 5, one of the things he says about being justified by faith is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's Shiloh. He is the one who is to come. He's the one that's going to rule and reign. He is the rightful deed holder to the earth. And so when you read the story uh, of, of the entirety of the end times in the book of Revelation, when, when the angels in heaven are crying out, who is worthy to un- unloose the scrolls? Who is it? It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's exactly the one that Moses told us about, God writing through him in Genesis chapter 49. He's the one that's worthy because he's the one that still holds the scepter of power. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think because this world is going pretty sideways, amen? It's almost like God lost his grip on the earth. No, be very well assured that the lion of the tribe of Judah is still the ruler of heaven and earth. 
He just hasn't chosen to exercise his rule. He has not yet come back to say enough. But one day he will. He's going to step out of time, step into time from out of eternity again. And he's going to come back and snatch his church home. But when he comes again, he's not coming as the lamb to be slain again. He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming back as the one who's already paid the price. He's coming back to rule and reign. And for us, as we think on these things, that's why, you know, sometimes we look at these obscure things that occur in the gospel records, like in the beginning of the the story in Luke's gospel, when the Magi, you know, finally, you know, reach this place and the shepherds have, have come to visit Jesus. Do you, do you remember what the angels actually said? Do you remember what it was? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill towards men upon whom God's favor rests. Why would that be? Because the one that was being born was Shiloh who is to come. The one who's the bringer of rest. The one who's the bringer of peace. Without Jesus there is no peace. The rule and reign of this earth ultimately is in his hands. The giver of rest stands before you tonight. The giver of rest is in heaven currently. But when Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you Shiloh. I will give you rest. I will give you peace. Take my yoke upon and and learn of me. For I am gentle and humble of heart. And you'll find rest for yourself. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is all a picture of who Jesus actually is. He's always been the bringer of rest. You remember when Jesus was with the disciples and he was walking through the fields and they were, they were gleaning grains of rye, they were, or grains of wheat and they were picking up things and they were kind of eating and the Pharisees approached him and asked the simple question, what are your disciples doing working on the Sabbath? Don't you guys keep the Sabbath? Jesus said, I'm the Sabbath. I'm the rest. I'll give rest for your weary souls. He's that perfect rest for us. And he gives that perfect peace. And that's why he said, as he was speaking to the disciples there in chapter 14 of John's gospel, he said, my peace I live with, leave with you. My Shiloh I leave with you. My peace I give to you. My Shiloh I give to you. Not as the world gives, because the world gives temporal peace, Amen. It's just an absence of conflict. When the world uses the term peace, it is generally a description of absence of conflict. In other words, nothing negative is happening. The world offers peace. When we do a peace treaty or a peace accord or we're seeking peace, what you're seeking actually is not what Jesus gives. You're just seeking to not be at war. It's circumstantial. It means that there might be some safety. Safety would be a good word in a, in a temporal sense. But Jesus isn't just offering safety. He's not just offering an absence of conflict, though he ends the conflict that we had with God because he takes care of our sin. 
but he is actually Shiloh. He is the one who brings complete peace, total peace, total rest. You remember what the promise was to Abraham? In you, you remember it? All of the families of the earth will be blessed. Amen? So how do you think that happened? Shiloh came. The Prince of Peace came. The Prince of Peace is also the King of Kings. He's also the Lord of Lords. He's the great I am. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He he is the only Savior. He's the only true King. And so this is the fulfillment. Jesus fulfills all of these pieces of this incredible messianic uh, puzzle. So in, in Genesis chapter 12, we read that, that in you all of the families of the earth would be blessed. It was looking forward to a time of fulfillment of what Jacob actually says here in verse 10. When Jesus came, it fulfilled that. In him is all the obedience of the people, it says there at the end of verse 10. And because the ending there, when it says peoples, that's because it means everybody. To all who call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. So if you know Jesus, you have peace with God. You have eternal rest. Isaiah chapter 2 says this, beginning in verse 2, And now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. As he, as he brings forth this time of peace and will be raised above the hills and all of the nations of the earth will stream into it and many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways that we may walk in his path for the law will go forth from Zion What's going to happen when Shiloh comes? The scepter won't depart from his feet. What's going to happen when Jesus comes back? He's going to set up his throne in the rebuilt third temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and he is going to actually rule and reign for a thousand years, fulfilling what Revelation chapter 20 says. Jesus is coming again. The king is coming again. Shiloh is coming again. Again, it'll go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and it'll judge between nations. And so Isaiah is seeing this prophetically, speaking of a time that is still yet future to us tonight. And he will judge between the nations, will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares. And I love this. Now the world aches for peace, doesn't it? Ever since May 14, 1948, there has been a perpetual state of war in the Middle East, effectively revolving around the children of Israel. They're completely surrounded by their enemies. And when you travel there with us, that becomes very, very, very clear. They're constantly in a state of armed conflict. Virtually not a day goes by when Israel launches some form of mission in the skies over Syria or Lebanon 
that hasn't been too terribly active in, in Egypt recently, but those nations that border them, they're constantly defending themselves. And there is going to come a time of peace. Why? Because the Prince of Peace himself is going to come back to Jerusalem and rule and reign from there. He's going to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives, just as Zechariah foresaw. It's going to split in two. And it says, they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, they're going to go from warring to farming. A nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. And if you study the history of the Jewish people, you're going to find out that they have either been at war or been dispersed for their entire history. There's never been a sustained time of peace. When they were in the land, even under the time of judges, they went through periods of war and they went through periods of peace. But there's never been a sustained time of peace. And so the Bible says Shiloh is going to come. Peace is going to come. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come to the house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so the emphasis here in the very last days is on Shiloh, who is going to come again. And so what we know about the very, very, very last days is that the one who is the Prince of Peace is going to come back and bring peace with him. And so when you read Revelation chapter 20, and you look at what God says is going to happen in the very last days, when we understand that part of Isaiah's prophecy there in in chapter 9, verse 6, that he is the Prince of Peace, he's the everlasting Father, he, he is that, the, the absolute ruler of all of the earth. He is the mighty one. He's El Shaddai. He is all of those things. And one day he's going to come and establish his kingdom. And it will be a kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. Exactly as begins in Revelation chapter 11. And so... It says here that he's going to tie his foal to the vine. Well, he'll be able to do that because there won't be any warring. Nobody's going to be stealing donkeys. There's going to be no rebellion. There isn't going to be any sin. There won't be any of those things. And so when that day comes, it puts into perspective what the Apostle Paul writes as he writes to the church at Philippi. They're in Philippians chapter 2, and you remember what it said, that God has actually highly exalted this one who is the Prince of Peace the one who is Shiloh, and bestowed upon him a name which is above every other name. There there is one who has a name whose name is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Those who are in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The only way that can happen is if Jesus comes back again. To do what he has not yet done, which is to take the deed of this earth and actually rule over it. He came the first time as the lamb that was slain. He came the first time as the one who would give his life in our place. 
but he's going to come back the second time to rule and reign in righteousness and to bring peace and finish exactly what he started, which is to bring peace and an eternal kingdom of peace, beginning with that thousand-year reign and then finally moving on into the eternal kingdom. And so until Shiloh comes again, we get a chance to know him daily, personally. We, we get to have that peace individually. One day, it's going to encompass the entire globe and all of the universe. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll pray. Father, we thank you that your eternal plans are yes and amen and they cannot be thwarted. Lord, that what you promise to do, you will do. And Lord, in our world that aches tonight for peace, Lord, it's so racked with violence and man's inhumanity to man. Lord, disease, death, wars, rumors of wars, the very things that you, Jesus, said would be the markers of the last day. Uh, we see every day in our existence. Lord, we thank you that that's not the eternal way things are going to be, that you are going to return and you will bring a kingdom of peace. And so, Lord, tonight we just offer up our lives to you that we would live uh, that life now, that you would give us your peace. Lord, that you calm our storms that you would move mightily in our midst, Lord, to set us free from the bondage of fear. Lord, when we're yours, we have a very specific end. And that end is a kingdom that is everlasting. It's a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom without disease. It's a kingdom without war. It is a kingdom where the lamb lies down with the lion, where there, where there are no more implements of of violence of any kind where there's no more death there's no more dying where we look forward to that day and we're grateful that you've told us that it was coming and you did so thousands of years ago you told us what the final king would look like or the first Adam messed things up the last Adam has fixed it all and so Lord we await your return we pray that you'd keep us rapture ready, ready to meet you at any time. And we look forward to that day when you poke your head through the clouds and come back to get us. And so, God, we bless you. We praise you. Uh, we thank you for the peace that we already have. And we look forward to that eternal kingdom of peace that will be beyond our imagining. And it's in Jesus' name, the name of Shiloh, who is still to come, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.